Hello, AJT readers. This is Josh Levitsky, and I'm joined as always by Roz Manon from the University of Nebraska Medical Center. It's just us today. Our uh, fellowship interns have run their course, and we have a new slate for next year. So Roz and I are put up to the task today to um, review six papers that are editor's choice that will show up in the June 2022 AJT edition. So uh, let's get started. So as always, let me go through the, um, we're going we're gonna to start off with three kidney transplant oriented papers, and then I will be doing a liver, heart, and lung. So a lot of good mixture today. So uh, Roz will be doing the first three, which are the kidney papers. The first one is entitled Effective Dual Inhibition of DPP-4 and SGLT-2 on tacrolimus-induced diabetes and nephrotoxicity in a rat, in a rat model by Co et al. Then we'll be dis- she will be discussing the role of bypass filters in deceased donor kidney allocation in the United States by King et al. And then Association of Transplant Center Market Concentration and Local Organ Availability with Deceased Donor Kidney Utilization by Hussein et al. And then I will discuss cumulative exposure to tacrolimus and incidence of cancer after liver transplantation uh, by Rodriguez Perelavarez uh, et al. And then um, an updated estimate of post-transplant survival after implementation of the new donor heart allocation policy by Lazenby et al. And then finish off with um, outcomes of lung transplantation from organ donation after medical assistance in dying. First North American experience by Watanabe et al. Okay, without further ado, Roz, uh, let's start off with the um, dual inhibition paper. Certainly. Well, thanks, Josh, for having me. And everybody needs to put on their, I don't know, what do they say, roller skates or uh, rollerblades? Because uh, yeah. this is going to be uh, hot and heavy information. So the first paper is, uh, as Josh pointed out, is called Effective Dual Inhibition of DPP-4 and SCLT2 on TAP-induced diabetes and, and nephrotoxicity in a rat model by the Catholic University uh, Research Group. Wu Yang is the senior author uh, this group has studied uh, rat models of uh, tacrolimus nephrotoxicity over the years. And in this paper, they're examining the impact of TAC-induced uh, type 2 diabetes. You know, some of the mechanisms associated with tacrolimus treatment is beta cell destruction in the eyelids, impaired glucose insulin sensitivity, and as, as my lab and other labs have shown, uh, induction of oxidative stress. So, the notion here is to use a combination of therapies that have recently been identified as renoprotective and potentially cardioprotective in the treatment of both type 2 diabetes with CKD and patients with, with just CKD without type 2, and that includes the dipeptidyl prolase 4 inhibitors and SGLT2 inhibitors. So just as a reminder, DPP-4s work by blocking, uh, by stimulating um, insulin, so they decrease serum glucose. They decrease glucagon secretion. They also increase GLP-1 expression. And so indirectly, like a GLP-1 agonist, they can actually make patients lose some weight as well. And the SCLT-2 inhibitors work by blocking the proximal tubule reabsorption of glucose. So patients have increased glucosuria, but they can also uh, indirectly increase glucagon. So these, so in that regard, if that glucagon mechanism, they're a little bit different. They use here a rat model of TAC-induced type 2 diabetes as well as nephrotoxicity. So these rats are salt-deprived, and, and then they get a mig, 1.5 mg per kg per day of sub-Q tacrolimus for three weeks. 
And then after they confirm hyperglycemia in these animals, they go ahead and treat them with either empagliflozin, uh, gemagliptin, which is a DTP4 inhibitor, or both for three weeks. And then they had multiple outcome measures. They, they demonstrate that when you treat animals with pack alone, these animals get sick, they lose weight. Uh, they lose even more weight when you put them in pagliflozin, which is not surprising because these animals tend to be glucosuric and have increased urine volume. And interestingly, there's no effect by the DPP-4 inhibitor. And when you use both agents together, the weights sort of seem normalized. The electrolyte concentrations in these animals, however, are well compensated. And interestingly, the TAC levels that they measured in these animals, I wouldn't exactly call toxic. They're running between 9.8 to 11 nanograms per mil, which is something that you would see clinically at the higher end of normal. But again, it's a rat model. Importantly, they're able to show that the treatment of either of these agents can reduce blood glucose, uh, air into the curve glucose, and they can increase insulin, and they can decrease A1C. I would say that the SGLT2 inhibitor is probably not significantly clinically relevant when you look at this rat model, and I think we know that. The combination is statistically significant. Um, importantly, the combined dual therapy maintains um, pancreatic volume in terms of islet cells that are present. Um, importantly, they also show that the treatment with these agents improves kidney function, so whereas creatinine, serum creatinine is highest with PAC, um, they're able to actually improve the serum creatinine and increase uh, creatinine clearance. They show evidence of histological improvement in terms of fibrosis based on semi-quantitative analysis of meson trichrome straining of fibrosis. They show some reduction in some of the molecules associated with fibroblast activation like alpha-smooth muscle actin and uh, beta-IGH3. They show some uh, additional agents with the combined therapy of showing less reactive oxygen species in both the kidney as well as in pancreatic islet. And then they did some peripheral, uh, they did some in vitro assays with both an insulin uh, secreting beta cell line as well as H2K cells, which are human proximal epithelial cells, and so that you can induce reactive oxygen species and oxidative stress in these cells using flow cytometry probe DCFA, uh, DA positivity and they see increased apoptosis in those cells. But when you add one or two of these agents, it goes it gets better, but you add the combination, and the combination is significantly better. So in total, they show in a translational model that both agents mitigate this TAC-induced kidney injury, and they improve uh, hyperglycemia. I would say that it's important to point out that um, while the combination is better in terms of managing glucose, there's only about a 30% reduction and hyperglycemia, and so whether that would be clinically significant in patients is not entirely clear. Uh, and A1C only was reduced by about 16% of baseline from where it was peaked. Um, I think what's interesting is that they're able to show protection of the kidney parenchyma by reducing fibrosis in only about three weeks compared to tax-treated animals. You could say this is really fascinating, you know, do these results translate into people in the absence of, type, of TAC-induced type 2. So if patients have pre-established diabetes, it's not clear if these two agent combinations would actually be a benefit. And what do we do in, an, in humans where they're also getting corticosteroids? Would these two agents be selectively uh, beneficial? There's a lot of interest in the SDLT2 inhibitors alone. There's not a ton of clinical data uh, in terms of safety and um, preservation of 
uh, improvement in, in glucose control and whether uh, in transplant patients, as we would see in CKD or type 2 diabetic patients, that we would actually see uh, benefit in cardiovascular disease, that's unknown. And finally, you know, the dose and duration needed of these agents translating this animal model, which is very contrived, we get that, um, to man is really unclear. But again, sort of an interesting um, translational study in this rat model. Yeah, very interesting. I, I was wondering, that it sounds to me like that kidney effect actually is independent or could be independent of the glucose modifying effect of these drugs. I mean, I mean, what I mean is could... You could could you potentially use this in a non-diabetic uh, transplant recipient to reduce renal injury from calcineurin inhibitors, or, or do you think they're I tied mean, together? I think it's a good question. I mean, nobody knows, and um, again, the the one way to dissect it would be to use an animal model where you're specifically focusing on kidney injury related mm -hmm. to CNI therapy alone. We've tried personally in the lab to look at sort of respiration of these cells with and without different um, inhibitors, you know, we exposing them to TAC, high doses of TAC or cyclosporin and looking at changes in respiration and mitochondrial function in the presence and absence. It's been, they're technically sort of challenging studies. So I, I don't know personally that answer. I mean, that certainly is a good answer. I mean, this is a model where they had hyperglycemia and renal yeah. injury, you know, and pay, a lot of patients. I mean, not everybody gets type 2 post-transplant. And again, I was really struck by the fact that these levels were really not toxic levels. They were therapeutic in people. So again, the question is, is, is it just because the rat model is manipulated with a low-salt diet to be very vasoconstrictive and to develop this? And is it related to volume depletion as well? I, I, I think it's, it's complicated. And I think using the at least the DPP-4s I don't think would be as complicated. Um, the GLP-1 agonists are complicated, so people get a lot of nausea and dyspepsia, and they don't absorb, they don't, it's hard for them to eat and drink properly, so they lose weight, but, you know, drug absorption is different. The DPP-4s haven't been utilized, I think, tremendously in many kidney transplant patients. And then, you know, the combo would be another issue, and, of course, then there's the cost and getting it approved by uh, insurance, but I think it was sort of a promising sort of preclinical study. Mm -hmm. Really interesting. Okay, next up. All right, next up, a completely change. So, and change over to a clinical paper. So, this is an interesting paper uh, called "The Role of Bypass Filters and Deceased Donor Kidney Allocation in the U.S." by King and all. This is Sumit Mohan's group at Columbia, including David Cohen and, of course, Jesse Stold and. Um, and it's accompanied by an editorial by Garrett Roll and uh, Rio Hiroshi called Fear of Missing Out, FOMO. So what are bypass filters? This paper examines these predefined filters for deceased donor kidneys that transplant centers can use to uh, efficiently allow for allocation and avoid getting offers all the time for kidneys that they know darn well they won't use. Now, I was always familiar with recipient filters, as many of us are, like we don't want a KDPI over age five. I mean, those are ones we talk at listing meeting, but I've never really paid attention to the donor filters very much, I think, or until very recently we had a QI meeting to review why our volumes were down and was it our filters. And so these filters really have categories within donor past medical history, donor habits, and very specific aspects of donor history like cold ischemia time, peak creatinine, um, current creatinine, prior histories of type 2, diabetes and hypertension. And so, and these filters are also important because 
they affect your offer acceptance ratio. So if you had very tight filters, like we don't take anybody, and you get an offer and you accept it because, of course, they, they're not, you're not getting tons and tons of offers. You wouldn't accept, you would think that your offer acceptance ratio would be better in line. And there is a metric now that if you're turning down too many offers, that's not great. So this looked at transplant centers beginning in 2007. They got information from UNOS and Star Files as uh, up to March 20th, 2020. Uh, and they evaluated the filter settings, and then they had a linkage to program-specific reports by SRTR to look at center characteristics. And they did a number of analyses. They did a cross-sectional analysis looking at settings from 07 to most recently July of 2019. They created what was an openness score, so they basically kind of calculated how many filters were open to take anything versus not. Some of these were yes-no filters, and some of them are continuous variables, so they actually had to do a little bit of calculation. And then they looked at center characteristics over the years, looking at individuals that, that became from 2007 more restrictive versus not. And, and those centers that actually were used to be more restrictive that became less restrictive over time and looked at their OARs or their offer acceptance ratios. I'll try to cut to the chase because there's a lot of meat in this paper, and I'd really encourage you to read it because I actually thought this was quite fascinating. Um, they showed the distribution of these filters over time. So you can see from 2007 the median number of filters utilized was 55 for deceased donors versus 64. So it seems like there's more filters, but there were more options over time. And I think the biggest change that was in about 27 transplant centers, about 15% became more restrictive. So the vast majority of our centers became less restrictive. And what did they become less restrictive in? Well, I bet you could guess what they were. Those were things like hepatitis C, where we have developed an understanding of how to manage those patients, because, those donors, because I mean, we now have effective antiviral agents. And I think also the impact of uh, PHS high-risk individual patients, understanding the history, what the implications are, looking at disease transmission, we've become a little bit more accepting of those individuals. So um, I think that in general, centers that were less restrictive tended to have almost twice the number of transplants performed, about 122 uh, in 2019 per center versus 68 for the very um, more restrictive centers in, dis in terms of deceased donation. And the less restrictive centers tend to be very focused on deceased donation rather than living donation, so they were more commonly looking at deceased donors. They, those centers that had less filters tended to have a, a higher median waitlist size, probably a higher waiting list time. And um, interestingly, when you looked at things like lamaria sclerosis and terminal creatinine, um, they seem to be less restrictive. There is a distribution. Uh, there's some interesting, um, there's a graphic in uh, figure two that kind of looks at some of these uh, factors over time, including, you know, including more tolerance of lamaria sclerosis. But interestingly, um, cold ischemic time really didn't change. I mean, I think people have sort of a set threshold of cold ischemic time, and they're not going to go over that. You know, the median is 36 hours. I'd say I know centers that would say, bah, we're not going to do that. But certainly as patients age, as the donor ages, you can see that the cold ischemic time tolerance goes down, and it's very similar to the way it was in 2007. And what are some of the other things I thought of? I think it's interesting to look at the distribution of health centers exist. So if you look at UNOS regions, the, the OPTN regions, the most 
restrictive was the Region 4, which is Texas, Oklahoma. Interestingly, lots of competition, but very, very conservative, so to speak. Less restrictive was, fascinatingly, New York and Eastern Vermont, which is very competitive, sense areas where there's limited organ accessibility, and shockingly, the central Midwest, including Nebraska, uh, Kansas, Missouri, Colorado. So I, I found that sort of interesting. And then finally, they looked at the relationship between these filters and, and, and volume. And I think importantly that, you know, very few centers that had low filter settings, very restrictive, tended to have, be in the top of offer acceptance. So even though they had these restrictions in place, they still didn't have great offer acceptance ratios. And that implied to the um, authors that maybe they're less open, they're more restrictive, they're more conservative, and hence they tend to probably turn down more organs, even though those organs are in their filter settings. So again, you know, how do we practice as a, as a group? I, I think this is really sort of a challenging study to have even accomplished because it's hard to access the filter information specifically on these SRTR reports. And, you know, precise measures of how many donors were excluded based on these filters is difficult to get out. It really precludes the center ability. It'd be great if centers could look at these filters and say, okay, where did we stand over year to year? And I don't think that that's part currently of the PSR. So perhaps one accent from this paper, which is quite important, is that maybe we should be able to have better access. Certainly OAR is part of our metrics, so why don't we have that? I thought there was some really nice discussion both in the paper and the editorial that there's opportunity for better decision-making and having decision-making tools with public reporting. I don't think patients know anything about this, and I would guarantee you that referring MDs don't because here you are, a nephrologist in the transplant center, and you it was really only till recently um, that my current center actually said, we're going to review these to look at our volumes and get comments from people. And if we restricted and didn't take a donor, what happened to those kidneys? So uh, I think there was uh, sort of similar support by the role in Hiroshi, um, uh, Rhea Hiroshi's uh, editorial. So again, really kind of nice paper. And just the idea of defeating fear of missing out was a great editor, great, really sort of a very interesting paper. Great. Maybe um, interest of time, we we'll move on to the, to the next one. Right. And I'm going to just really briefly send people to see this because I think it's a complicated paper and we don't have a ton of time, but this is the Association of Transplant Center Market Concentration and Local Organ Availability with Deceased Donor Utilization by Hussein et al. It is a collaborative paper with Samit Mohan and colleagues with a number of individuals, including um, Han Nang, who is uh, in the Department of Economics at Penn State, and Joel Adler, who's uh, at Dell Medical School um, in, in the University of Texas, the new medical school, Austin, that also has a transplant program. And so uh, I'm just going to say that um, this paper attempts to look at the role of market competition within a donor service area, so the number of programs that are present within the DSA versus organ availability to look at transplant utilization and transplant practices. And I'll summarize by saying that when there is lower competition, you know, you don't really see a, a relationship between, and figure two is a great one, when you look at market concentration, you don't see a strong relationship between high and low competition in terms of organ discard, organ export. But when there's more organ availability, you see a slightly more but significant increase in discard 
and an increase in export and discard when you go from low um, availability to higher availability. So, you know, lower, um, it, it's just sort of interesting to me that, you know, that we're making these decisions because we have organs, so we feel comfortable to let them go. And maybe that's a relationship where you're thinking, is this the best kidney for that person or should we wait because we're going to have access to them? So, um, it's a retrospective study. I would say it involved data before CAS 250. So how this relates to the fact that now we have these sort of geographic restrictions wasn't clear to me. They did some very nice sensitivity analyses between KDPIs were high and low. But I think that when you have kidneys are less likely to be used locally if centers have less intense local organ shortage. So if there's lots of volume, you probably feel comfortable I would think psychologically to let an organ go than if you didn't. And um, again, it's it's there are actually some so-called monopoly uh, OPOs that have single center. And again, that doesn't really exist anymore, change in organ availability with CAS 250. So I don't know how this paper fits into current uh, allocation schemes, but it's certainly sort of an interesting analysis highlighting, you know, the role of competition and multiple centers where you would think competition, oh, I'm not going to give up that kidney because that other center is going to use it. It's really more based on volume. Thanks, Roz. I'm going to just move right into uh, the three papers since uh, we had a lot to uh, cover today. So I'll probably spend a little bit more time on this first paper, which is cumulative exposure to tacrolimus and incidence of cancer after liver transplantation. Um, this was a multi-center effort in, in Spain. Um, the lead center is in uh, Córdoba, Spain, uh, Manuel Rodriguez Peral Varas. But uh, this is a Spanish consortium that is looking at cancer in relation to chronic immunosuppression and organ transplant recipients. Um, of course, we all know that there's uh, an increased risk of malignancy and Liver, all organ transplant recipients. This one is focusing on liver transplant, and we it's 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 upwards of five times that higher than the um, age and gender match general population. And certainly, some cancers are more likely uh, with immunosuppression, immunosuppressive therapy than others, such as those related to viral infections and and other risk factors such as smoking and alcohol, and of course, sun exposure with skin cancer. Um, etc. And uh, the ultimate belief, although it really hasn't been directly proven, is that calcineurin inhibitors, based on the mechanisms of CNI therapy with uh, increased TGF-beta and sort of uh, pan-immunosuppressive immune responses, um, are the highest, are the agents associated with the highest risk of cancer but it's it's never really been shown in a study correlating levels of calcineurin inhibitors and risk of cancer in a robust way. Um, there have been a, a few small studies showing hepatocellular carcinoma recurrence is higher in in patients on tacrolimus at at, at higher level at higher trough levels than lower trough levels. But besides that, there hasn't been. It, it's sort of a theoretical risk. And so what this group set out to do was to take their large cohort of liver transplant recipients between 2010 and 2015 among 16 transplant institutions in Spain. And we're um, trying to determine the risk factors for 
de novo or recurrent malignancy. And they identified patients. So this was a case control study uh, retrospective, and they identified cases of malignancy after liver transplant and then matched them to uh, controls that did not develop malignancy who had age sex ma uh, matched controls who had a, a similar follow-up period as to the cases. So they, they did a pretty good job of matching and used propensity scores to match uh, patients depend um, based on clinical risk factors for cancer. And so they looked at um, the first 12 months of uh, immunosuppression exposure. I think they wanted to get a larger end. So they just looked at the first 12 months and they kind of broke it into the first three months and then uh, the first 12 months. And they uh, defined on, on figure one sort of four levels of exposure and high exposure were target trough levels in the first month greater than 10 and thereafter greater than eight. So when they did a cumulative exposure, which was um, basically they're, they're, they're calculating the area that under the curve of the trough concentrations, this would sort of equate to, let's say, at, at three months greater than 840 because they're, they're adding up doing the area under the curve, for instance. And so when they do a conventional exposure, it's like first month, seven to 10 trough levels and thereafter six to eight. And then there were some smaller cohorts that had more significant minimizations where their trough targets were in the, the low range, like four to six, three to five, but these were a, a smaller percentage. Um, the prevalence of the high exposure to TACRO was about a quarter of the patients were in that group, and the rest were, were mixed up uh, between conventional exposure and some minimization or aggressive minimization. They first looked at sort of general risk factors and found about most of the patients had risk factors for malignancy, including age, male sex, smoking, and alcoholic liver disease. About a, a quarter of them had all of the risk factors. They found that, not surprisingly, that the number of risk factors correlated with the risk of cumulative incidence of cancer. Um, so again, older male positive alcoholic liver disease and, and smoking um, increase the risk of cancer. Not, not too surprising. We all, we all know this. But then they looked at the, uh, cumulative exposure in the first three months, uh, between the groups, uh, of tecrolimus and also the first 12 months and found a, uh, uh, um, a, a high rate of malignancy in patients in this high cumulative exposure group across the board. Um, some were a little higher than others. Um, but nevertheless, there was a significant difference between those in the high exposure group, particularly within the first three months. And in a multivariate Cox regression analysis, they found uh, an increased exposure to be the only independent predict predictor of post-transplant malignancy after controlling for clinical features, liver cancer, and other immunosuppressive drugs. In fact, the other immunosuppressive drugs like a mycophenolate and mTOR inhibitors, azathioprine, which was a small percentage, didn't seem to correlate with the risk of malignancy. And so what does this mean practically? So um, they also they looked at sort of the, the increase in the exposure across the different groups. And for instance, an increase in exposure by 20% within the first three, mo three months was associated with a significantly high risk of colorectal cancer, lung cancer, and, and HCC recurrence. And in the first 12 months, colorectal cancer and skin cancer. 
So what, what's interesting about this study really is that, like I said, this is kind of the first time, to my knowledge, that a sort of a direct link between exposure to tacrolimus and the risk of cancer. There's There's been studies showing a, a correlation between tacrolimus and um, renal dysfunction uh, with this area under the curve. But this, this um, cancer association really hadn't previously been shown before. The, the practicality of this is that, um, and the authors bring this up, is that more centers have gone away from these high exposures early after transplant. So the question is whether this is, is still relevant. You know, having tacrolimus levels greater than 10 um, in the first month and greater than eight all the way until 12 months is, is more than, um, I guess, in the U.S. we typically do. But it speaks home to the fact that uh, if you have somebody with a history of hepatocellular uh, carcinoma or you're worried about re a recurrent cancer or developing a new cancer, that keeping patients below this level may reduce their risk. They didn't really prove that in this study, but it certainly makes biological sense. And uh, the fact that they were able to show this like systemically across the board that that uh, the vast majority of the, these cancers had this association with chronic exposure, I thought was quite uh, quite fascinating that they were actually uh, able to find this association. I think obviously having large numbers of patients to be able to do this analysis of cancer was critical here. Having you know sixteen centers involved in this study with with um, long term follow up to to make these associations, I do think this has does have clinical impact in making us think about those high levels, particularly in the HCC patients. Um, of course, it, a study needs to be done uh, that prospectively looks at this to actively, you know, uh, minimize people versus standard immunosuppression to, to reduce the rates of the, these types of cancers. But I think pretty cool study. I don't know if anything has been shown like that in the in the kidney literature or other no, no, not directly in this fashion. I think the other things that I found interesting here was the predominance of male sex being mm -hmm. a higher risk factor and the act of smoking where, you know, it's very hard to get patients to stop smoking and you keep telling them that, but this is sort of fascinating data. I guess, you know, my question is, well, you know, could this affect practice patterns you know, in terms of both kidney and liver, for example, in terms of the, like the first month greater than 10 probably doesn't happen a lot anymore. I mean, I think eight to 10 and then coming down to six to eight over a couple of months is usually what they've seen. But it's interesting to sort of see how they looked at cumulative exposure over time. So, and the association with HCC, which again is not something we commonly See, we get a lot of, of uh, we see more urinary tract associated mm -hmm. malignancy. So ESKD patients have a higher frequency, a significantly higher frequency of urological malignancies, and particularly renal cell uh, cancers. And so I wonder if there's a similar association with TAC exposure or CNI exposure, as you point out, triggering um, yeah. theta as maybe the yeah. pro- Malignant well, so. well, I was hoping that um, there was they would have enough data to look at like mTOR inhibitor exposure and reduced risk, but 
they just didn't have enough patience on it and enough mm-hmm. data to do that because that could have been helpful. But you know, I think this is practice. At least it's a red flag, put it that way, for to really try to avoid over overdoing it with CNIs um, in our, especially our patient population that has HCC, just yeah. like the Span- yeah, HCC and the, and the Spanish population. Uh, I mean, aid older patients with mm-hmm. smoking and alcohol history are a pretty significant percentage of our our recipients. So, okay, so I'm going to finish off with just two quick uh, papers. Um, the first one is a updated estimate of post transplant survival after implementation of the new donor heart allocation policy. This is um, by Lazenby um, and uh, William Parker, who are at the Pritzker School of Medicine here in Chicago. I had to kind of refresh my memory about the uh, donor heart allocation policy changes that were in um, 2018. And essentially, um, it used to be a three-tiered system of 1A, 1B, and I forget the last category, but um, and they moved it because there was so much variability within those uh, statuses. They divided it up into six different categories of really prioritizing severity of illness, sort of similar to MELD in a way, but but using criteria like whether you're on ECMO, you know, that pushes you up to status one. Um, so, but now there's status one, two, three, four, five, and six. And of course, as we've seen since we've been doing these, this uh, AJT highlights podcasts, a number of um, authors presenting updated uh, data on survival um, and outcomes after new policies. Um, we've seen this with across all of the organs. So this one is in response to, there's actually been um, a report, seven reports after the new heart allocation policy evaluating this post-transplant survival. Five of them showed actually decreased survival under the new policy and two showed no difference. So the, the reason this group looked at uh, re-looked at this was because of uh, significant follow-up concerns with those prior reports. And they, they, they go to, um, they try to avoid the issue of censoring uh, patients based on their follow-up time. So for instance, if censored patients have longer survival times than non-censored patients, then the Kaplan-Meier estimates can be uh, biased toward downwards and make it look worse than it actually is. And so they, um, I don't want to get into all of the different statistics that they use. They used SRTR data, um, a pre-policy approach for 2017 and then um, 2018 to 2019. And they looked at the first year post-transplant survival. There's not enough time really to have much longer follow-up than that. And of course, COVID happened and there's, of course, issues around uh, the data around that time period. But Nevertheless, they compared about 2,500 pre-policy patients in, in the pre-cohort and 20, over 2,700 in the post-policy cohort. And essentially, they did a very robust analysis and, and included the follow-up period that was quite extensive to really basically determine that there was no difference in survival uh, from pre- to post-policy. If you look at um, figure one and then figure two, they kind of break it down even further into um, the different estimates of survival. And um, the other interesting portion of it is that they looked at some of the subsets of uh, different severities of illness, status one through six, and they 
they found that patients on, on ECMO and mechanical ventilation actually had improved survival in the post-transplant period, uh, presumably related that they're, they were specifically prioritized as opposed to the pre-policy where they were kind of lumped in into a, a status 1A amongst, you know, many other conditions. So, I, you know, I think this hope, this kind of feels like a more definitive paper and why it was considered an editor's choice. Obviously, this is just one year follow-up, so we'll need to see further down the line if this holds up. But it, it does give the notion that the sicker patients are, are maybe have a little better survival in the, post, in the post-allocation period. But at least overall, there seems to be no real difference uh, compared to prior reports, which suggested there was worse survival. So I imagine for a, a heart transplanter, this is uh, re- reassuring. Anything to say there, Ron? Well, no, because we're running out of time. But um, yeah, yeah, hopefully it will be the definitive study and we'll await the letters to the editor in in response of of, uh, any statistical issues. All right. And then the last one I thought was uh, kind of a small study, but but, but super, uh, super interesting, nevertheless, because I don't think I've I've seen this um, presented before in in any meetings or... or, uh, Published, but this this group in uh, in Toronto, Canada, Watanabe is the, the first author, and Marcelo Seipel at Toronto General Hospital are reporting on outcomes of lung transplantations from organ donation after medical assistance in dying. The first North American experience. We used to call this assisted suicide, but medical assistance in dying is is I think the better term. And uh, they 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 outright say that medical assistance. And dying accounts for uh, up to 2.5% of all deaths in Canada, which I, I was not aware of. It was that high of a percentage. There's only a few countries in the world. They mentioned Belgium, the Netherlands, and um, Spain having a this in place and making it uh, legal to have people have uh, physician-assisted help in, in, in death. And... Uh, the most of these cases are neurodegenerative uh, diseases such as ALS, uh, Huntington disease, multiple sclerosis. So the thought here is that these are, are, are reasonable patients to consider for organ transplantation. In fact, um, there was a, I actually looked at this uh, kind of consensus document, guidance document that uh, recommended in, in using these donors for organ for their organs, there's sort of some ethical principles that the that the patient who is undergoing this medical assisted suicide be the one consenting um, and not like a family member, that they should be making that decision first before agreeing to donate and not be uh, the reason to die is to donate their organs. And then in third, if the eligible the the um the guidance and the practice of this should be reviewed. Uh, to ensure there's no new changes in this, if if you get if a, if a if a system is going to start taking these donors, so what the uh, this is the, sort of the Canadian North American experience. There were I think 33 cases that since it was legalized in 2016 that were um, transplanted, um, and they compared this to just the the run of the mill, I guess, the uh, uh, donor after brain death and. DCD, lung transplants. Interestingly, there were two cases that medical assisted 
medical assistance in, in dying was provided at home um, as opposed to the hospital. And they basically, they uh, administered the, the drugs and then um, they intubated the, the donor quickly and brought them to the hospital and donated their lungs. Uh, but most of these were done in the hospital. The bottom line is, is it's a small study and uh, it basically showed equivalent survival at 30 days and also at one year uh, between the standard groups, which is like over 600 lung transplants compared to the, um, the, uh, the MAID donors, uh, medical assisted assistance in dying donors. I think, you know, this is uh, obviously was considered an editor's choice because it's um, obviously there's ethics involved here. Um, and there's only a few countries that, that do this, but it, when, when reading about it, it really kind of makes um, a lot of sense. I mean, they have this, they have diseases that aren't really affecting their organs there. It's their neurologic system. They're otherwise probably as, as healthy donors compared to some of the, um, you know, DCD or DBD donors that are, that are sick and in the hospital and are dying and are donating their organs. So these are actually relatively healthy organs from, from patients that have a mainly neurodegenerative disease. But, you know, it just was an interesting study. It's not really too generalizable. And I don't know if, if it ever will be in the U.S. or, <laughs> or elsewhere. It's, but um, very, very just kind of uh, thought-provoking study, I thought, uh, a thought, thought-provoking report. Did, did they happen, I'm trying to skim it pretty quickly, did they happen to say wh- who they determined of the donors to be checked by ex vivo or examined by ex vivo perfusion? Was it like yes. they were looking for a risk categorization, say, older age, or some of these, many of these patients can often be on ventilators because of loss of pulmonary musculature function? Did they happen to mention that at all? Yeah, well, like two-thirds of them were ex vivo perfused, trying to see and hear exactly the indication for it. But they, they kind of just reported which ones had ex vivo lung perfusion versus mm-hmm. those who, who didn't. But um, it, was, uh, it, was, it was much more common in these situations than, uh, than in the sort of non uh, the regular way, the regular lung transplants. But yeah, I mean, it, it's just an interesting study. I mean, I, I um, didn't think we'd ever, I didn't re- even realize this was happening or that it was that high of a percentage in, in Canada. I'm going to have to uh, ask my Canadian colleagues at the ATC of what their thoughts are on this. And I assume other, other organs are being donated, but they don't mention that in, in here. Um, no, they don't, although there's a couple of people I looked at in stage kidney disease, so obviously that yeah. person didn't donate kidneys, and some had cirrhosis, three had cirrhosis, one had heart failure, so in a minority, actually, of the 33 with neurodegenerative, it doesn't look like a ton of them had significant um, other organ uh, damage, oh. but it doesn't sound like they used the other organs necessarily, or we don't, it's not mentioned in here. It's not mentioned in That would be yeah. interesting. Wow, I didn't know anything about this. So yeah, yeah. Well, you all right. Those so. Canadians—they're always doing something. <laughs> okay, I think that wraps it up. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Roz. Take care. All right. Take care. Thank you. 
The opinions of the hosts of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the American Journal of Transplantation. For AJT highlights, you can find us online at amjtransplant.com. That's amjtransplant.com. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter. 